Greetings, everyone. I am G. Long, the host of the Long in the Boot podcast, coming at you from the heel of the boot of Louisiana. It is, well, I don't know what day this is actually going to go out, probably Wednesday, but it is Sunday morning, and hopefully everybody's doing well and trying to get things cleaned up and fixed up and patched up after all of our fun uh, with the two hurricanes now into the Greek letters. I don't know what comes next. Hopefully we won't get to the Cyrillic alphabet uh, with with hurricanes, although there is a small wave down in the Gulf. Um, who knows? I, I'm not. We're not going to do a hurricane show. I promise you, I wouldn't because the last time we did a hurricane show, a hurricane came, and the time before that, we talked about a hurricane and a hurricane came. So this time, we're not doing it. We're not going to do a hurricane show. In fact, we'll do anything but a hurricane show. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me and uh, leave me a message, as many of you have already, the number is three three seven five zero two nine zero one one. The email for Long in the Boot, Long in the Boot at gmail.com. And of course, my sometimes host Habs is off doing, I don't know, Habs stuff, I guess. I hear a little birdie told me that he was actually at the Magic Kingdom. So I don't know. Hopefully he's on his way back and we'll get him back in here one of these days. But I do have a special guest today. And that is my good friend, Lyndon Jocelyn. Good morning, Lyndon. Hey, good morning. And I should preface this as we start, if we, uh, if we make reference to the fact that we've been talking for a while, it's because something happened a while ago, and my machine did not continue recording, and so we're going to try this again. I'm going to take full responsibility for the absolute screw-up that was the beginning of this podcast that you all didn't hear. In fact, no one will hear it because it didn't get recorded for some reason. We're going to fix it, and we're going to do a better version of that first attempt anyway. That's the way I feel. Let's see how that goes. Yes. <laughs> um, Lyndon is the uh, author of a great book, and it's appropriately timed since we're getting so close to the Halloween season. The book is Count Dracula Goes to the Movies, currently in its third edition. My personal signed copy is the second edition. However, Apparently they just keep putting these things out, I guess, uh, vampire movies, and you gotta you gotta add to it, right? Yes, um, Dracula the novel and the character are in the public domain, so anybody can make a Dracula movie, and uh, so they're going to keep making Dracula movies, both adaptations and sequels and spinoffs. As a matter of fact, there's a section of the third edition here that's not in the second edition. It's called Dracula Obscura. It's about four independent, really low budget, and generally crappy versions that were <laughs> were made like in. Just the the aughts, you know, like 2008, 2009, stuff like that. And they never got a theatrical release. You can get a copy like on online. It's like they'll they'll the equivalent of print on demand. You order right. it, they make it, and they ship it to you. Oh, okay. And so yeah, they're they're pretty bad. But uh, for a completist like myself, I had to see them. So. You've got to do it. You've got to yeah. see it through. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a great book, y'all. Uh, if you get a chance, go to Amazon again. Lyndon Jocelyn. Uh, Count Dracula goes to the movies, and it's a fully detailed account of pretty much every Dracula movie that's been made since, well, Dracula movies. A lot of interesting facts and, and a lot of really good history as well of not just the movies themselves, but also of of Hollywood and certain eras of Dracula movies. They, they sort of came in groups, and there's some really interesting uh, periods where they they were prolific and they still as you well know if you watch movies at all today they're still making dracula movies i'm going to refer to lyndon the rest of this uh if, if i call him by name as vlad i've known uh i've known vlad for quite a while we met at a, an event 
in a, a reenactment group that uh, he belonged to long before I did, but uh, the Society for Creative Anachronism, which a lot of people know as a medieval reenactment group, mm. although it's really medieval study and medieval history or study and reenactment and all kinds of various yeah. aspects of it. And originally when I met Vlad, I knew him as the Shiner Bach guy because, well, he gave me a Shiner Bach. Yeah, I showed up from Texas bringing the Bach. And I had never had a Shiner Bach before. And he was inter- he was introduced to myself and the lovely Deborah. From that point, we were like, who is that guy? The Shiner Bach guy. And finally it was like, Vlad, that's Vlad. Oh, okay. And we ended up becoming uh, camp buddies pretty much and mm, yeah. sharing camps, camps over and over again and learned that – we have a certainly have a love for movies and cinema and and history, especially history, medieval history, but not just medieval history, all kinds of history. One of the things I always noticed about Vlad was too was you're always writing, you're always just sitting down, writing a journal, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, when we turned in last night after we were all falling asleep in front of the TV, yep. before I turned the light out, I sat down at the desk in there and wrote a couple of pages in my journal that I've been keeping since '93. Do you think that's something writers? that kind of have to do almost. I, I, I've i never heard any writer yet not say that, especially published writers, that they don't write. Like all writers seem to say, I write all the time. Yeah. And it just, it, it's entirely possible. I don't know. I think different uh, writers have a different uh, perspective to it. Some of them might find it therapeutic. To some extent, I might find it therapeutic, but I just find it uh, it helpful to jot down what happened today so that, you know, because you, you have sometimes very vivid memories of, wow, this happened, but you don't know exactly when it happened and you might lose track of some of the details. And I find it interesting to write down what happened right at the time it was happening and read about it later and saying, oh, okay, I, I thought I remembered that somewhat differently, but I was there at the time and I wrote it down. So this is what really happened, you know? So well, I've talked about that before, actually, with memories when I go and see, um, uh or if I go visit like a friend of mine from high school and we talk about an event that we both remember from high school, we remember the event, but it is absolutely true that neither one of us remember the event the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always some kind of difference. And I, and it's, it's sort of, I think it's one of those things that everybody is there, the writer of their own narrative. And so you get people remembering the exact same event and they remember the detail, the, the main details are the same, mm-hmm. but there's these peripheral things that both people remember completely different. Like, no, 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 it was a Monday. And they're like, no, it was a Tuesday. And yeah. <laughs> it was absolutely a Monday. And then somebody else would go, no, I think it was Saturday. <laughs> well, yeah, that's uh, what's that, that song? It's a duet between a man and a woman. Yes, I remember it well. And they remember everything quite Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. That's not an offensive song today, is it? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Not yet. But um, <laughs> speaking along those lines, I have, um, as you, you know, because you know her, I have a long-term girlfriend of uh, 10 or 11 years now. And um, and our, our, so she has long since figured into the pages of my daily journal as I write in it. I'll write about stuff she and I discussed or did or what have you. And um, one thing that I've gotten in the habit of doing is I uh, – I, for some years now, I've been going back and reading what was happening a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, and seven years ago. Well, at some point, she expressed an interest in that, so I'd start reading to her uh-huh. these daily readings. And um, for several months now, we didn't. This didn't used to be the case, but we talk on the phone every day now. And um, and every day when I call her, I read to her from seven years ago, and then five, and then three, and then last year. And 
I've known her that long. So she figures in all these pages, there she is to one extent or another. Right. And one thing that's interesting is she very seldom, if ever says, that's not the way I remember that. <laughs> so uh, apparently my observations are pretty good. And uh, she and I literally are on the same page because she, she, she never interrupts and says, now, wait a minute. <laughs> well, we were, in fact, wasn't it? Uh, I think we were there at the, one of the events when you first met her. Yes. Uh, Cause I remember Deb was like, well, go talk to her. <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess that, that it, it was at that, uh, that tavern there at, uh, at yeah. the Gulf Wars site in Mississippi yeah, where yeah. a large medieval reenactment occurs. And it's a place where adult beverages are served. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, I looked for this girl for many, many years. Where'd I meet her? In a bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was a medieval bar. Yeah. I had to travel 400 years to get there. <laughs> that's, that's a movie right there. Are you yeah. kidding? Hollywood? <laughs> are you listening? It's a 400, ep- 400 year epic. Getting back to your, uh, to, to your book, as we were talking about earlier, um, you grew up in Lake Charles. Yes. Graduated from Lagrange. Mm-hmm. What year did you graduate? 74. 74. So you're seven years older, I guess, than me. Yeah, or, yeah. or as we knew it at the time, LLX, LXXIV, 74. Ooh, nice. <laughs> it, would, it would have taken me quite a bit longer to figure that out. <laughs> Lagrange, by the way, in the recent storms, Lagrange suffered horrible damage. So if you ever had an issue with Lagrange, you can either you know, <laughs> like, yes, finally they well, got theirs. It's one thing to look back and grumble. Oh, high school, grumble, grumble. Yeah, but and yet I actually got a pretty good education there. That was back before Jimmy Carter created the department of education obstruction. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, actually I'm, I'm, I'm that way with my high school. I did not like high school, but looking back now, I'm like, wow, I got a really good education. When I got out of high school, of course there was no internet. Uh, there were no cell phones. We communicated by smoke signals, of course, but, uh, <laughs> but I knew how to use a dictionary and encyclopedia and the card uh, catalog. I was going to say the card catalog, <laughs> the infamous card catalog. Yeah, I knew how to, to look for stuff. If it could be found in print, I, I knew where to look for. Well, it. you had to do a lot of that for this book. Count Dracula goes to the movies. You did. That's a pretty well-researched book. I, uh, thank you. And, and clearly you spent some time in doing it. Yeah, as a matter of fact, somebody asked me uh, when it when it came out. I said, "Well, how how long have you been working on it?" I said, "Since I was 12. <laughs> well, growing up in Lake Charles, obviously, you, what 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 brought you to horror movies? What was the, what was the thing that kind of led you that direction? Uh, I was always interested in them when I was uh, quite young. Uh, I one of an early memory having to do with it is um, I went to. The long defunct Paramount Theater in downtown Lake Charles. Um, this was based on when these movies came out. It was 1965. So I was eight going on nine, probably. I saw a double feature hammer films of uh, The Gorgon and The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. And it sounds like something you'd see at a drive in, you know. But uh, I came away from I saw that with, it seems like I saw it with some friends or my brothers or something. I wasn't alone. And I came away saying, that was cool. Those were neat. I want to see more of those. <laughs> and my parents, you know, I, 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 I have friends who say, oh, their parents never let them watch these. Oh, those are going to, you know, those will warp your mind. You're never going to. But my parents never really gave me much difficulty about these movies because they didn't bother me. They didn't keep me awake at night. They didn't give me nightmares. I didn't wake up screaming. I didn't wet the bed or sleepwalk or try to, oh, can I sleep with you guys tonight? None of that. It was like, He's got a hobby. Leave him alone. He'll be out of our hair, you know? So. And, and they were, I mean, for a kid, some of those movies are genuinely, well, scary today. When you ask a young person today, a scary movie, they think a slasher film. Mm-hmm. Those movies were 
amazing in the past. And I saw them on TV more than ever at the theater, mm-hmm. but the suspense they could build. Yeah. And, uh, now I mentioned a minute ago, I mentioned 12 years old, 12, I was 12 and actually I may actually have been 11 based on when it came out. It was when I first saw the, the first time I saw a Christopher Lee Dracula movie. It was Dracula's risen from the grave. It came out in the United States in 1969. So I saw it I, spring or summer of 1969. And again, at the Paramount theater in downtown Lake Charles. And uh, that is what kind of really brought me on board, I think, because I'd already seen, um, you know, Bela Lugosi's Dracula on TV. And apparently already at age 12, I wasn't confused by saying, that's not the same guy. Yeah. I, I knew the difference, you know, there's the, okay. They're two different actors are playing the same character, you know, but that kind of got me curious about it. And, um, <clears throat> and, but in, in Lake Charles, I was watching the old Universal. They had the Universal Shock Theater package. It was released to TV nationwide in like 1957, 58. And that's where I saw the old Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy, the Invisible Man, and all so, these. So when you say the package, Universal released this to like TV stations across the country? Yeah. Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and they, it, then they could, so they could just show it whenever they wanted to. Right. Like, yeah. 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 It, it, it wasn't like a syndicated series. Okay. We're going to be showing this, this movie. At the same time, every Saturday night at stations across the country. No, it was handled locally. Lo- that's what I was asking. Yeah, it was, so it was a local thing. Yeah, and local stations would come up with, you know, your horror movie host, your Uncle Weird or somebody like that. But um, and like Charles, I was watching these. KPLC didn't have them. KLFY out of Lafayette had them. And they didn't put on a local actor in a fright wig or anything like that. They just showed the movies. But the sweet thing was they not only showed the horror movies at, 10:30 on Saturday night. They also showed them at 6:30 Saturday morning. Same movie. So I had a paper out in those days. I'd go out and throw my papers early Saturday morning. I'd come back, pour myself a bowl of cereal, and sit down in front of the TV and watch Son of Frankenstein or something. You know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And at 10:30 that night, the same movie would show again. So I'd get to watch it the first time and sort of study it the second time. So this part was exceptionally good. How did they set this up? And in those days. Before home video, watching the same movie twice on TV in the same day was just unheard of. You couldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was really quite a quite a blessing. But um, I started noticing in, in a lot of these movies, the Frankenstein movies, uh, based on characters created by Mary Shelley. You know, the Dracula movies based on characters created by Bram Stoker. So I, I got curious. I, I wasn't exactly a speed demon in terms of satisfying my curiosity. I didn't read Frankenstein until I was in high school. And Dracula, I read when I was in college, but I did finally get around to reading them. Is because I'd seen so many movies about him. And, yeah, and, and, and some of the others uh, are also based on class. I never have read The Invisible Man for some reason, but I've read Dorian Gray, and uh, I've read Jekyll and Hyde. I've read Phantom of the uh, Phantom of the Opera. Is The Invisible Man is is that a novel? Uh, yeah, it's by H.G. Wells. I don't think it's a long novel. Oh, I that's right. Okay, okay. But uh, I've never, and of course, that Invisible Man movie they came out with early this year before all the theaters closed. Yeah, has jack to do with H.G. Wells. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the character who turns invisible has the same name as Griffin or Griffith or something like that. But other than that, zippity doo I mean, as that's the worst. That, to me, that's always the insult of mm-hmm. insults is when they make a yeah. Movie. At, at the same time, it's not a bad movie. It's really quite an effective movie, but it is is it's not H.G. Wells. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if you, I, and few I've things seen the are. Movie, I've seen the movie, but I don't happen to remember if they have that credit line in there, you know, inspired by each. I, I don't know. They might, but I don't happen to know right off the top of my head. But um, 
Anyway, yeah, it, uh, it just got me interested in uh, in reading the books, and I finally did. And uh, and of course, this book is uh, my book is uh, an, a comparison of the novel, sort of a point by point detailed basis, with the various adaptations that have come out over the years, and then the series of sequels by Universal and the series by Hammer Films. Uh, Again, with the same question, how much Bram Stoker survives in these sequels? Right. Sometimes there's bits and pieces, and sometimes there's not much. But um, and for for you young folks, the Hammer when he refers to Hammer, it's the the Hammer Studios. Hammer Studios, yes. And the, was that British? Yes, all British productions. And Christopher Lee, of course, uh, you guys know him as Saruman in, in Lord of the Rings. Uh, that that Christopher Lee, who actually is an interesting person, just in his own right, anyway. Yeah, he finally died in twenty. <laughs> Jeez, let's see, not in anything. Twenty um twenty fifteen because yeah. he was ninety three. He was born in 1922, the same year Nosferatu came out. Oh, yes. <laughs> but he was 93 years old, and he has quite a distinction. He'd made like well over 150, 180 movies, something. I forget how many. But he had been, he had not only been pretty much a one-man series at, at Hammer Films playing Dracula far more times than he was actually interested in playing it, but <laughs> he was a working stiff actor, and so if they wrote him a check, he'd play the part and grumble about it. Um, but he was also in the Star Wars series right. and the Lord of the Rings series and the James Bond series. He was the title character in the man with the golden gun. That's right. I remember that. So he was, he, and he was actually, there's a little known movie and I say little known because it didn't, at the time it came out, it didn't make any waves and it certainly doesn't now because it's very dated, but it was called serial and Christopher Lee is in that one as well. And he plays a completely comedic character, mm-hmm. and he's wonderful. He's a great comedic actor. He's actually quite funny, mm-hmm. and uh, so he's. In, yeah, I've seen him in, in a lot of different things, but I he is the for me as a kid. That's Dracula. That's mm-hmm. what I saw on the the Saturday night matinee or whatever or matinee Saturday night uh, horror movie thing they had in Kansas City with. I'm going to say it was like I think they called him. I think they called him Uncle Ed. Mm-hmm. I think. But it was, and he had the stupid voice and the yeah. laugh, you know. Well, um, um, Christopher Lee, though, I, I I don't really know that much about his uh, personal life prior to his being in the movies. But as I recall, he was in World War II. Yep, he was. Uh, he he did kill some Nazis like with his bare hands type of guy. I mean, he was he was he was uh, you know hardcore. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say good for him. Yeah, really. <laughs> well so done. So that um, when he was playing Saruman the White in the um, Lord of the Rings movies. And Peter Jackson, the director, said to him, so, okay, Mr. Lee, for this next scene, I need you, for you to imagine the sound of somebody's throat being cut. And, and Christopher Lee said, I don't have to imagine it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> You're perfect. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's, a very, he's very intimidating, even on screen. I thought he was- Even a, when he plays a good guy, he's not somebody you want to monkey with. No, no, it always seemed <laughs> that way. Going back to uh, the- Dracula going to the movies. We have a, the first, so the first movie is Nosferatu, right? Nosferatu, yeah. It was a silent film made in 1922 in Germany. And it, it has a look for sure. It's still, it, I, I'd like to say, well, it holds up, but silent movies, it's hard to say that about silent movies, but mm-hmm. the cinematography in that, that movie, I still think is phenomenal to see. The camera work in Nosferatu, I've seen it like three times and it's been Couple few years since I've seen it before, but it's the use of shadows mm-hmm. and uh, obviously black and white. They didn't have much to play with, but clearly they had a look they were going for mm-hmm. and they, they did it really well. 
the actor in question, the Nosferatu, Max Schreck, mm-hmm. I noticed in your book, I thought it was really interesting. I'd always assumed it was a stage name. And uh, you point out that that's, in fact, the guy's real name. Yeah. Um, a lot of people assume that it was some sort of pseudonym because Schreck means terror in German. But far as they've been able to determine, far as I know, yes, that was his real name because he was in other movies and he always used that name. So yeah. if it, if it wasn't his real, real, real name, it was it was one that he uh, didn't just use for Nosferatu. It wasn't a gimmick name like that. By the way, not ding, 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 Shrek. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just realized the cartoon character. Is that why they named him Shrek? Strange to say, I'm not sure which cartoon character. Shrek. Oh, 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 uh, oh, uh, uh, the, 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 the ogre, the ogre, yeah, the ogre. Yeah. Do you think they Mike, used Mike. Shrek for that reason? Oh yeah. That means terror. Yeah. 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 Because he's supposed to be this terrifying character, but he's actually just huh. this lovable lump who tends to fart a lot. Well, it just, uh, <laughs> it just occurred to me. I was like, Oh, duh. Yeah. I was, I was just a little bit lost there for a second. Well, I just, I, I just, seen the movies, but it, it hasn't popped, popped into my head. I was like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Hold on here. <laughs> Those guys, no German. So Bram Stoker, I guess let's talk about him for just real quick. Um, as far as books go, what, what do you know about, Besides Dracula, it's the only one anybody knows. By Bram Stoker? Yeah. Uh, well, he was an aspiring novelist. He liked to fancy himself among the like the literary elite there in London. But um, he never really quite caught on in the way some of the other people did. I mean, one very famous person he used to hang out with was Oscar Wilde. And um, interesting, when uh, uh, Stoker never wrote his own autobiography, but he did write a biography of... Um, Henry Irving, who was an actor that he was like the stage manager or personal manager for for many years. And so in writing about Henry Irving, he wrote also about himself and about all these people they knew in the the stage and literary uh, uh, world of London at that time. And the one person that's the, the name that's missing is Oscar Wilde. Oh, Cause, uh-huh. cause after, after Oscar Wilde's scandal, he just... We were talking quietly. about cancel culture earlier. It's kind yeah. of like he just got swept under the rug. Nobody talked, nobody talked about Oscar Wilde and his indiscretions anymore. So uh, that's such a shame. <laughs> yeah. But uh, in any case, um, so Stoker was, he was in, he was in those same circles. Yeah. Uh, the literary, but his, circles. apparently his one big hit was, was Dracula. And he wrote other books um, before and afterwards and, and collections of short stories. He wrote some really crackerjack short stories, but his other novels include, Lair of the White Worm, which has been filmed. We talked about that earlier. That's weird, yeah. weird. Uh, hey, kids, go check that movie out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he also wrote uh, this uh, movie called The Jewel of Seven Stars, which was uh, a sort of an Egyptian mummy's curse type of movie, a reincarnation type of movie, which has also been made into a movie several times. Hammer made it uh, called uh, in the 60s. There's a movie called uh, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, which is a very lurid title. The movie itself is actually not bad, and it's uh, it's atmospheric and eerie, and it's really sort of about a mummy's curse. There's not a mummy walking around or anything right. like that. It's like a reincarnated person or something. Is it that, that story like a person – like see somebody and they've been reincarnated from the past. Is that kind of, that kind of thing. I, I've only seen it once and it's been a while, but I remember thinking, Oh, that wasn't bad. And it was one of several times that, that, that particular, it was made into a movie about 1980 called the awakening with Charlton Heston. Well, I was <laughs> so. oh, the awakening. I remember that. Yeah. I, I was thinking about the, when, when uh, Francis Ford Coppola did his Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm-hmm. he uses that idea of the reincarnation. Yeah. Thing. So, I wonder if that was a little bit of a callback to Stoker's other work. Yeah, it could have been because it's it's not 
this whole bit about uh, Mina or Lucy is Dracula's reincarnated, long lost wife or love or girlfriend or something like that. That's not only not in the book, yeah. Dracula, it's not even hinted at. It's just not there. And yet it's so much, it's so central to the story of Bram Stoker's Dracula when they came out in the movie in 92. Right. And, uh, God, it's been that long. Yeah. Jeez. It's been more than it's 28 years. This year. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> and, and it made a big splash, a very popular movie. I've never liked it for various reasons, but, uh, but one of them being the hype surrounding it. And, uh, because they were saying that it was oh, the first and most faithful adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dragon. And it was neither. It wasn't the first and it wasn't the most faithful. And I had people telling me, oh, you know, it's the most faithful version, right? And I said, have you read the book? Oh, uh, no. I said, well, I have. So save that for the tourists. You know, I know better. What's the, uh, what's the, what do you think, in your opinion, what's the most faithful adaptation? Uh, the one that was made for the BBC in 1977, I believe, with um, Louis Jordan. In the uh, in the title role, it's called uh, Count Dracula, and um, it even it makes you know streamlines it somewhat because the book has too many do nothing characters in it, so it, it merges, right. merges a couple of those, and it has uh, among other things has one of the best and most respectful versions of Renfield ever done, because Renfield is kind of a difficult character. He's kind of a hanger on in the book. He's sort of. Uh, this guy, he's, he's in a mental institution, and he's sort of a clinical vampire. He, he eats bugs and spiders and flies in an attempt to absorb their life form, and therefore, a life force, rather. And therefore, he has sort of a psychic link with Dracula. He knows when Dracula is, is coming to England, and uh, he's like the only person in the story who really knows what the hell's going on. And, uh, <laughs> and it's difficult to commun- communicate with him because he doesn't really want to discuss it with anybody. Um but different versions of the novel don't quite know what to, or of the movie don't quite know what to make of them. So Christopher Lee's first one, Horror of Dracula, was quite a good movie. It was only eighty five minutes long, and the book runs more than four hundred pages. So Renfield is right. not in it at all. They just he's completely left out. But there are other movies where Renfield is in it, but because he's eccentric and he eats bugs, they turn him into comic relief. Which right, is, I've seen that numerous times. Which is, I think it's kind of inexcusable, but. Uh, the uh, the Louis Jordan version, uh, uh, Renfield is is really very well done. Quite a quite a part of the story, and is not for one minute made to be to look funny. So uh, going back uh, to to the book, well, into the movies, well, Hollywood going to the movies, mm-hmm. and uh, so we do Nosferatu. The character Nosferatu in the nineteen twenty two version, as we were talking about earlier, he's closer in appearance than most of the Draculas we see. Yeah. Uh, Dracula in the book, he's not sexy. He's not attractive. He's cadaverously thin. He's pale. He has a big pointed nose. He has pointed ears for crying out loud. He has long pointed nails. He has a, a big white mustache, a head full of white hair, glaring red eyes, hair in the center of his palms, yeah, that's a that was a something that I had not caught in real life for some reason. I didn't remember. And anybody who gets close enough to find out will say he's got really foul breath too. So he's just this ghastly character that uh, uh, that that sort of pestilential nature of him is captured pretty well in Nosferatu. I mean, he literally brings plague to town with rats and everything. 
his teeth are like rat's teeth. They're just two front and center teeth. And um, the only thing appearance-wise that's different about him is that he is bald, like a skull in uh, Nosferatu. Yeah. Other than that, he's very much the way Bram Stoker wrote the character. And since then, they've seen fit to make him suave and sexy and, and <laughs> all this. But, I've always thought this funny. It's it's ironic that the closest uh, to Nosferatu or to uh, Stoker's Dracula for teeth is Count Chocula. Mm-hmm. It's a <laughs> yeah. Which incidentally, Count Chocula, you'll notice he doesn't look anything like a Bela Lugosi caricature. It's because Universal Pictures still very jealously guards that. That do they still? Yeah. That, oh, wow. copyright on that image, which is why Chocula doesn't look anything like Bela Lugosi. Uh, that's every funny. every other Dracula caricature looks like Lugosi, but not that one. Yeah, so. and and Lugosi is the one everybody thinks of, even still, mm-hmm. even even the voice. Yeah, yeah, even yeah. Uh, in the uh, Transylvania, the Hotel Transylvania cartoons, you still have Dracula talks like this, like that. He's got this <laughs> cheesy fake Hungarian accent because of Bela Lugosi. You know? you know, I was I was in shock when I saw that the first time because I didn't, I, I I had avoided it saying, oh, it's going to be stupid. It's going to be cheesy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my granddaughter was visiting, and they said, can we watch this? And I was like, yeah, all right, I guess. And, man, I thoroughly enjoyed that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really did. I laughed. I do not say blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there were there were great, there were so many great sight gags. And the one thing that really killed me was when the credits rolled, and I'm looking, and it's Adam Sandler. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was in shock. And then in the second one, when they brought in a – or when grandpa shows up, it's, it's Mel Brooks of all people. I'm like, that is the best. <laughs> if you get Mel Brooks to do anything, you know, cause he's, he's a national treasure. He really is. And in fact, did his own Dracula movie, right? He Didn't did. He? Uh, at Dracula dead and loving it, which is in my book because comedy though it is, it's an adaptation of the original story. Right. In the way that young Frankenstein was not. Young Frankenstein wasn't just a, a remake of Frankenstein. It was a pastiche of bits and pieces from the first three of the Universal series, the ones that Boris Karloff was in. And uh, if it, it kind of helps to be familiar with those movies to get a lot of the gags in Young Frankenstein. Right. But he wrote his like an original story, but it's a, a very, fairly typical sort of story from the Universal series. Like one of Dr. Frankenstein's descendants is going there and picking up where he left off or something. So um, it's, it's, um, it's an example of something that I read um, several years back that I forget who said this, and I guess I'd always sort of instinctively known it, but hadn't really fully realized it. That said a satire, the best satires of a particular genre are also good examples of that genre. So Young Frankenstein, oh, okay. Young Frankenstein is not only a good parody of a Frankenstein movie, it's a damn good Frankenstein movie. It is. It is. In the same way that Shaun of the Dead is a damn good zombie movie. It absolutely is. Yeah. I still and and a, and a great. Well, it's satire not only on zombie movies but on society in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I still tell people all the time. I think the opening shot of Shaun of the Dead of the people walking around in the grocery stores and stuff before the zombie attack actually happens, and they all look like zombies right mm-hmm. from the get go. Yeah, correct. Think, <laughs> you nailed yeah, it. One of the best sequences in that movie is Home uh, Run. <laughs> is early in the, the movie when Sean is all distracted and pissed off because his love life isn't going well, and he does his everyday walk down the store and around the block to the to the convenience store to pick up his bottle of milk or whatever it is, and all around him are zombies, and he doesn't even notice. Right, they're just <laughs> it's just another morning. Oblivious. <laughs> a, a truly great movie. If you haven't seen it, mm-hmm. and shame on you if you haven't. Sean of the Dead, it's a, it's well, it's it's priceless. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and but, part of a trilogy actually that mm-hmm. is quite good. But anyway, uh, going back to since you, you'd asked about uh, Dracula Dead and loving it. Yeah, you know, Mel Mel Brooks did that one, and and it is 
It's. I don't think it's particularly funny. It's not really all that good a movie, but it's, it rates mention in this book because it's an adaptation of the original story. And, and that's just, your goal here. I mean, yeah, that's they just they attach some gags to it, and that's it's it's still a version of the original story. So it, it rates mention here. So and it wasn't done on the cheap either. It's a good looking movie. Yeah. So they decided to remake Dracula again after Nosferatu. Or well, they didn't. They, they decided to make Dracula the, mm-hmm. the book into a movie. Why Bela Lugosi? Why do you think? Well, um, there's some backstory there. It started out, what what ultimately became the Universal movie started out as a stage play in London that um, was a big hit. Critics hated it. Audiences lined up down the block to see really? it in, in London and in the provinces. And uh, then it came to the United States, opened on Broadway in uh, New York in 1927. Uh, it was somewhat revised for an American audience. Uh, the two guys were involved. One was Balderson and one was Dean. Uh, one wrote it, and the other one sort of adapted it for American audiences, and I forget which was which. I'd, I'd have to look that up. I might have to read my own book to find that out. <laughs> but um, in any case, at the same time, it was a big hit on Broadway. You had uh, traveling companies going around the, the, the country performing it in, here and there, like in like Chicago and L.A. or what have you. And um, Bela Lugosi played the part on Broadway, and he also was uh, later joined one of these traveling troops. So he knew the part backwards and forwards. And so when it was time to make the movie, you'd think, well, he'd be a natural choice. They cast almost everybody else first. They were going to cast Lon Chaney Sr. in the role. But Interesting. kind of ironically, for a guy who'd made his career in silent movies, he died of throat cancer. Yeah, so he couldn't be in it. But they were, they were hilarious. All, yeah. <laughs> there were all kinds of other people, Chester Morris, Paul Muni, all these people, uh, you know, like gangsters. Do I recall reading in your book, uh, Bela Lugosi, when he started playing it on stage, he had to learn it phonetically? That's the story. I'm, uh, there's some question as to how true that is. It's a good story. It is a good story. Certainly by the time he played the part in the movie, he had learned English. He did already. But there, there, there is persistent uh, stories told about how he learned the part phonetically for stage because he was a Hungarian immigrant who uh, uh, was still learning English. And if somebody blew a line, he would be a bit lost. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I can I can see that. <laughs> but um, in any case, he practically had to beg for the role when it came when they were making the movie, and then they hired him and said, "Yeah, we can get him cheap because he already knows the part." Sure. And um, the guy who was actually making the money in that movie was a fellow who played John Harker, this uh, uh, sexy young British actor named uh, David Manners. And David uh, Manners, uh, yeah, who like where is he today? But he, uh, <laughs> they, they, they paid him a lot more than. Then it was about a six week shoot and they paid him about $5,000 a week, which is that, at that time, that was a huge amount of money. That, that's pretty good coin today. But in, in 1930, when they were filming it, yeah. that was outrageous. 5,000 a week. Bella Lugosi got 3000 total overall. Oh, wow. That, what a difference. Yeah. And it, uh, it 1931 turned out to be between Frankenstein and Dracula. 1931 was universal's only, profitable year of the 1930s they coasted the rest of the depression on the strength of 1931 and they, wow. they owed a lot of that to bella lugosi and they treated him like dirt he didn't play the- well, i was going to say he uh, this is in the middle oh well not in the middle but in, it's in the depression it's mm-hmm. certainly in the middle actually it's right in the middle of the depression i guess mm-hmm. so he helps them have a profitable year and then they still treat him like crap yeah yeah he was in uh, several other movies he and boris karloff made some movies together and then next thing you know he was kind of making movies for the uh, less prestigious studios and uh, 
And he only played Dracula a second time. And that was when they stopped, had long since stopped taking the series seriously. In 1948, he played uh, Dracula in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And that was the last time. Oh. And um, after that, he uh, he struggled to find work. He had been a drug addict for years. Right. Um, he... Uh, he could he, every now and then he'd put out a proclamation saying, I'm not going to play Dracula again, but all he could get was like offers from dinner theaters in Poughkeepsie or something to, to come play Dracula. And he'd do it because he couldn't find other work. He couldn't went to, work. he went to England in the early fifties and lived and worked there for several years, making a, a couple of crappy movies, old mother Riley meets the vampire and things like that. And um, well, I guess his last work is also one of the it's a movie that's considered the worst movie ever made, which is Plan 9 from Outer Space. Right. Yeah. And, as and he happens, died while that was being made, didn't he? He died beforehand. They shot the, the he's in the movie for a few short, you know, just a couple of short mentions or, or sights of him. I, I haven't clocked it, so I can't say whether it's seconds or minutes. Well, I know they hired somebody to walk around with his arm across his yeah. face for the rest of <laughs> What happened was um, he, he made friends with Ed Wood, who is a spectacularly untalented young film director who nonetheless had a lot of moxie and a lot of vision and actually made a consistent body of work. People who think Ed Wood is the worst director ever made have obviously never <laughs> seen a movie by Jerry Warren or some of the really just astoundingly <laughs> bad directors, people who just found a movie camera. Ed Wood actually worked in the business and he hired the best people he could, including yeah, well, Bela Lugosi. Hired money. He hired people for the money he had, right? Yeah. And he was going to make uh, a movie, uh, a comeback movie for Bela Lugosi called something like Return of the Vampire or something like that. So they shot some, just some scenes of Bela Lugosi coming out of the house and looking around that sort of thing, just sort of establishing shots. And then he died. Yeah. So he had this little, just a few minutes of film of Bela Lugosi and finally occurred to him, said, I, I can't let this go to waste. I got to build something around this. And so they built the entire screenplay of uh, what was going to be called grave robbers from outer space. It was later called plan nine from outer space. Um, in which Bela Lugosi has this brief mention, uh, brief, brief appearance of these uh, these few minutes that were shot before his death, and as you mentioned, the rest of the movie is played by a completely different character walking around a cape with he which he just holds up in front of his face. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's, it's crazy. Actually, the movie they did of all of this, the Ed Wood movie with Johnny Depp, is actually a very enjoyable and well made movie. I. I really love that movie. I do too. I have a lot of love for that movie. It's one of those that I watch every Halloween because there's a wonderful scene involving trick or treating at Bella Lugosi's house. <laughs> yeah. Where else? Where could you go that would be better than Bella yeah. Lugosi's house? And, uh, hey, kids. <laughs> Vampira is a character in the movie. And right. Of course, she was out of work at the time she appeared in Plan 9 for Outer Space, also. <laughs> a lot of people were out of work when they appeared in that movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a. Uh, but but every every incarnation of and it doesn't matter how it's done. It could be for a commercial for a used car lot. If Dracula's in that commercial, it's going to sound like Bela Lugosi. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and and it doesn't matter what it is: cartoon, straight, real horror, absolute, just satire. It doesn't matter. The Count on Sesame Street. Oh, oh, oh! Absolutely, it's Bela Lugosi. So. It's really interesting. So Bram Stoker has this one great novel mm -hmm. that somehow has just continued chugging along. Yeah. And people keep readapting it, doing mm -hmm. different things with it. Bela Lugosi's character, he's an actor who really didn't get a lot of work except for this one role. You know, people worry about being typecast. But mm -hmm. he, in fact, that's he's typecast because of one 
role. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and he didn't do it over and over and over. Yeah, he just did it that couple of times. I mean, Christopher Lee did it way more often. Yeah. And he still didn't get typecast as Dracula. He was able to perform and play all kinds of other characters later. That's true. Um, although I, I, I can bet you that, that Dracula is probably on his gravestone, if anything, because well, that, that is, uh, for better or worse, that is what a lot of what he's remembered for. But, I, for uh, me, that's the first thing in my head when I think of Christopher Lee is still Dracula. Mm-hmm. Then then comes all the other stuff. But Dracula yeah. is still first because it's it's who I remember as Dracula. Yeah. There, <laughs> there came a point in his career when he was talking to interviewers and he just didn't want to talk about it. So I can see that. Ask me anything else but that. <laughs> Please, so, not that. But yeah, to me, one of his finest hours was in The Three and the Four Musketeers. Yes. Yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, he was so good in that. And uh, Rochefort. Yes. The one eye. <laughs> he, he is the Count. He, uh, he is the Cardinal's living blade, they say. Yes. Uh, those are good movies, too. Yeah, and they, hardly anybody in that cast is still with us. They're all, yeah, yeah. I think Raquel Welch is still alive, but uh, you know, the rest of them are dying off. We were talking about young Frankenstein a minute ago. Mel Gibson is uh, Mel Gibson. Mel Brooks. <laughs> I always do that. I trip up on the two. Mel Brooks is like one of the sole survivors from he's uh, left. That's young it. Frankenstein. Yeah. Cause Carl Reiner just died. His best friend for yeah. God knows how long. Yeah. But, um, What's his, uh, uh, Terry Gar, I think might still be alive, but she's been ill from, I thought she passed away. She may have, cause she was ill for a very long time, but Marty Feldman didn't even live to be 50. Yeah. Uh, Gene Wilder died a couple of years ago and Madeline Kahn. Peter Boyle, Madeline yeah, Kahn. She died quite young. Thing that's not often unknown. Actually the, the guy, um, uh, Mars, uh, Kenneth Mars, he lived till not too long ago. It was, he, he did die a few years ago. Yeah. And, uh, it was, and I still think that is one of his finest moments in any yeah. movie ever. <laughs> yeah. He, it, well, he, he, he sort of specialized in playing German caricatures too. He was, that uh, was, uh, uh, he was in the original, uh, again, Mel Brooks, pre, uh, uh, version of the producers, right? He was the ex Nazi who wrote springtime for Hitler. <laughs> And uh, late in his career, I think one of the last things he did, he was in uh, Malcolm in the Middle. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, he was uh, a German immigrant who owned a dude ranch. <laughs> <laughs> a dude ranch. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he, and he's. And I, when I looked up Kenneth Mars, I was curious about his body of work, and it was a, uh, it was all of the char- cartoon characters he's voiced. Yeah, over the years. Oh my lord, him. he was on SpongeBob. I mean, <laughs> you can't you can't beat that. If you've made SpongeBob, mm-hmm. you, you've you've done something. Yeah. <laughs> but um, as far as Madeline Kahn, though, uh, one thing that's not generally known about her is that she was a pixie. She was about four foot ten, four eleven, something like that. She was tiny. She was itty bitty, and she has such a huge presence. She just fills the screen when she shows yeah. up. But she was bite sized. She was a little bitty thing. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. <sighs> Great actress. Oh, so funny. So I have your second edition. You have a third edition here. Yeah. Is there, what do you think, what's, what stands out from recently you think in the, in the canon of Dracula movie wise, was there anything you saw that you said, Hey, this one's pretty darn good. I wish I could say other than the ones that stick out in mind lately are the ones that are <laughs> pretty darn bad. Um, Dario Argento, who's blown hot and cold over the years, he, he made a horror movie back in the 70s, in 1977, called Suspiria. Oh, yeah. Which is still very frightening, very hard-hitting. Well, several years ago, he made Dario Argento's Dracula, and it's ridiculous. It's bad. <laughs> it's just awful. What a shame. Yeah. But, of, um, of course, we got television series now, not necessarily based on Dracula, 
Uh-huh. But uh, what we do in the shadows—that's oh, that, wonderful. That series yeah, is so. You enjoyable. like what they've taken, what they've done with the vampire mythos in mm-hmm. that? Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of fun. Of course, they 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 perpetuate the thing about sunlight, which yes. is. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about it this time or if we were talking about it previously when the recording unfortunately shut off, but how uh, sunlight is such a go-to thing in vampire movies. Like, oh, they can't come out in daylight. Oh, it's almost in every, almost yeah. every mm-hmm. vampire movie. It goes back to in, in the Universal films. They'd always say a single ray of sunlight falling upon him would destroy him. That's invented totally by the movies. That was uh, invented, in fact, by Nosferatu. The sun came up on him and killed him, vaporized him. And that's not, it's not only not in Dracula, because he comes out in the novel two or three times in broad daylight. He doesn't dig it. He'd rather not. He comes out when he has to. But he's just, in daylight, he's just some guy. You could walk up to him and blow his brains out with a gun. No powers whatsoever yeah. in the daylight. At nighttime, he's in his element. He's formidable. He can walk through walls. He's spectral. Uh, but uh, in daytime, he'd just rather not. But in that's one thing that, in the same way the movie got me to read the book, the book uh, Bram Stoker researched it for like 10 years before he wrote it. And he put a lot of folklore in it. And that got me reading vampire folklore, which is interesting and complicated far beyond what you typically see in the movies. And the one thing that never comes up is they aren't harmed by sunlight. And they come out, there are periods where they would come out into, into daylight so boldly that they were called demonium meridianum noonday devils. So, was that was that inserted into the movie Dracula, uh, the one with Bela Lugosi? Uh, it's mentioned. Yeah, he never comes out in daylight. But uh, and in Nosferatu, it's not mentioned at all, right? No, Nosferatu, he's he's killed by oh, he's killed sun, by sunlight. Sunlight. That's, that's right. That's so that's where it begins. That's where it begins. Less than a hundred years ago, nineteen twenty-two. That's that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, but it's uh, and I discuss. Um, Why do you think they added that? Well, as a matter of fact, probably the best way to answer that. If only I knew someone who wrote a book about this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a passage in, in which I address that. This might be a lengthy little passage here, but it's okay. because Because it's, it's well written. <laughs> there you go. Uh, as often happens to the Count and other vampires in the movies, here he's done in by sunlight. Stoker's Dracula, by contrast, can and does come out in broad daylight. He does so in the novel three or four times. Nor does he come out only on cloudy or gloomy days. It was a hot day for September, Mina writes in her journal of the day she and Jonathan encounter Dracula in Hyde Park, and so they find a comfortable seat in a shady place. Uh, not until Bram Stoker's Dracula do we find a movie count who can so rub elbows with the daytime population. Like I said, I'm not a big fan of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, but he does come out in the daylight. He in does. The movie. He had those really cool sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> those blue sunglasses were really hip. Uh, even in the novel, though, Dracula's daytime appearances aren't without risk. His power ceases, Stoker has Van Helsing say, as does that of all evil things. At the coming of the day, until the sun sets tonight, that monster is confined within the limitations of his earthly envelope, that is, his body. He cannot melt into thin air nor disappear through cracks or chinks or crannies. If he goes through a doorway, he must open the door like a mortal. In the novel, a sailor aboard the Demeter creeps up on Dracula by night and tries to stab him, but the knife went through it empty as air. This incorporeality compares with the chilling scene in Nosferatu in which the Count makes a spectral, translucent appearance on board the ship. Yet later in the novel, when Dracula confronts Van Helsing's party as they sterilize the last of his boxes, Jonathan takes a swing at him with his kukri and strikes a decidedly tangible target a second less than the trenchant blade had shorn through his heart as it was the point 
just cut the cloth of his coat, making a wide gap. The difference between the two attempted knifings is that Jonathan's takes place about 1.30 in the afternoon. So being afoot in the daytime per Stoker robs the count of his nighttime invincibility. But at the time of Jonathan's ambush, which takes place after Dracula enters the building from outside, the afternoon sun does the count no harm at all. Folkloric vampires, too, can shrug off the sun's rays. Summers, uh, Montague Summers, again quoting William of Newburgh, tells of another 12th century vampire who, after he had harried people during the night alone, began to wander abroad in plain daylight, dreaded by all. He further notes that per a treatise by Elachi, the vampiric Vricolacos of the Greek islands is so destructive to men that sometimes he appears in full daylight, even at noon. In his 1928 book, The Vampire, His Kith and Kin, Montague Summers argues that vampires may wander abroad during the day and that the vampire is truly demonium meridianum, noonday devil, as I mentioned a moment ago. Now, what a startling revelation many people find this to be. They're often as surprised as Van Helsing surrogate T. Eliot Stokes upon first seeing Barnabas Collins in broad daylight in House of Dark Shadows in 1970. Vampires in daylight? The very idea yanks the rug out from under decades of vampire movies, many of them, like Nosferatu, quite good ones. One of the few other vampire by daylight movies that leaped to mind is 1958's Curse of the Undead, a gothic western about a vampire gunslinger, which is a tad difficult to take seriously. <laughs> Uh, another is 1974's Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, a late hammer effort. That's in a category of its own. Yeah. <laughs> it's a that. strange film, yeah. The uh, Noonday Devil also undermines the overpraised writings of Anne Rice, as well as knocking the struts out from under legions of goth vampire posers who mouth such inanities as, well, I know I'm a vampire because I like blister in the sun after just a few minutes. <laughs> oh, and I'm descended from Vlad the Impaler, too. So where do we get this cinematic conceit, this bit of Hollywood folklore, which also includes such false notions as you become a werewolf if you're bitten by one, that a vampire is killed or even vaporized by sunlight? Since 1922, movie vampires, Dracula included, when exposed to sunlight, have faded, withered, melted, crumbled to dust, burst into flames, even exploded, all with no basis in folklore or in classic literature either. Uh, Jay Sheridan Lefanu's often filmed vampirist Carmilla was even more of a daytimer than Dracula. So why? Well, part of the confusion may arise from the folkloric tradition referred to by Summers that the vampire is more likely to be abroad at night. This is no surprise since vampire attacks upon their sleeping victims were, in fact, nightmares. Haunts of all type tend to go bump, especially at night. Even the ghost of Hamlet's father vanishes with a cockscrow. From this tendency, there apparently arose an assumption that it had to be so, and that a vampire, not merely an apparition, but a physical presence, would suffer physical harm from sunlight. Other factors contributing to the characteristic fear of sunlight from movie vampires would seem to be the simple, if not simplistic, good-evil-like-darkness dichotomy. Christ himself said that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The ease of using the sunrise, uh, sunrise deadline as a suspenseful plot device, already in use as early as the 1927 stage play. And, of course, the opportunity such a scenario offers to devise ever more sophisticated special effects to depict the daylight demise of a vampire. Compare, for example, the sudden fade-out of the Count at the end of Nosferatu to his agonizing disillusion at the climax of horror of Dracula, then compare either of these to the pyrotechnic solar destruction of the main vampire in both versions of Fright Night, 1985 and 2011, 
and you'll see the law of heightened expectations at work. Now, in the final analysis, if there were such things as vampires, then movies promulgating the baseless notion that you're safe from them by daylight would be on a par with the old civil defense films of the 1950s that tried to convince you that radiation was no big deal. They could get you killed. Yeah. Actually, I like the idea of the plot device, that it just makes something easy to to work around. It's a just a nice, handy yeah. idea. Plus, knowing that the sun is going to be coming up in 10 minutes, you know, so you've got this uh, race against time and that sort of thing. There's this uh, wonderful cartoon by uh, Gay and Wilson. Are you familiar with him? I am. Yeah. It shows... Uh, uh, Dracula or somebody like him, some vampire with a cape, and what have you. He's, he's re-entering his crypt. Uh, right. And there's his coffin there with the lid open. He's running in. And in the background, you see the sun coming up and a couple of guys chasing after him with stakes and hammers and the vampire saying, accursed daylight savings time. <laughs> yeah. Guy Wilson was uh, the, the great cartoonist for Playboy magazine. So many, uh, mm-hmm. uh, really morbid cartoons coming out. Of him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Where, do, where do you think we go from, we talked. We were talking about Hollywood adding the sunlight thing mm-hmm. as a plot device. So it's a plot device in a lot of movies to just kill Dracula. Mm-hmm. The Anne Rice movie, just for a minute, Interview with the Vampire. I know you can't possibly really care for those books or that movie too, too much. Uh, I read the first one back when it was first in paperback. In the which, 70s? Back in the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Long before it was a movie tie-in. And I liked it so much, I've not read another syllable she's, <laughs> she's ever written. Um, but um, I remember when the movie came out, I went to see it. I've got it on DVD. I actually, as I recall from having read the book quite some while back, it was a reasonably close adaptation of, of the novel. Wasn't bad. And it's it's good looking. It's got a nice cast. And I particularly enjoy the way Kirsten Dunst absolutely steals that movie from both of those superstars. She sure does. <laughs> and um, she still does that when she's in a movie. There's mm-hmm. several TV series that she's done that lately. Yeah. Well, anyway, the movie's good looking and atmospheric. And I like that aspect of it as really as much as anything. And I remember there was a reviewer at the time who was grumbling about it and said, this is like a hammer film with a big budget. And I said, well, where's the problem with that? Right. <laughs> if Hammer had had the money, yeah, he would have made some amazing. The studios would have made some amazing movies. Yeah, if they'd had the actual dollars to do what they could have done, mm-hmm. you know. But one of the things that uh, Christopher Lee always grumbled about is that his character as Dracula was so limited. All he did was glare and stare and chase the ladies <laughs> and throttle the guys who came after him. But he didn't have that full range of powers. He never once turned into a bat. Right. I mean, in the very first movie, they said, "No, nah, he 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 doesn't really have that power. That's a superstition." Really? It's in the book. But uh, but they, <laughs> they they had moderate budgets and apparently decided not to embarrass himself by putting a rubber bat on a string. I, I find that fascinating, too, that that the way Hollywood has played with this story, they, they can do almost anything with it within a certain framework. And they get too far out of bounds, then people go, that's, yeah, I don't know. But then you get some movies that'll take just a teeny crumb of the Dracula story and wrap a whole completely different story around it. It was, uh, I was thinking about that movie from uh, the 80s, Near Dark. Uh-huh. That's a vampire movie, yet it has nothing to do whatsoever, really, with Dracula, mm-hmm. except for the sunlight thing. Yeah. <laughs> which isn't thing, in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, as it happens, Near Dark came out the same year as The Lost Boys. 
Oh, I didn't know that. And everybody looks back on The Lost Boys. Oh, what a fun movie that was. I've never really liked The Lost Boys, and as time goes by, I like it even less. But Near Dark has almost exactly the same story, but it's like yep. the grown-up version of it. It's a better movie. It is much better and very violent. It was directed by Catherine Bigelow. It's one of the most violent movies ever directed by a woman. Really? Uh-huh. I had no idea. I love that movie. Yeah. That's a, it's one I, I, and I didn't know what it was. I caught it one time on VHS. Uh-huh. I was like, well, this looks fun. I wonder what this is. And, uh, watch this, put it in. And man, I, it was a ride and yes, kids near dark. You want yeah. to check that out. It has a lot of the same, several of the same cast members that were in aliens. I guess it does. Uh, yeah. Oh, Henry, you're right. Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxton, Bill and Paxton the, and the female Jean- I, Jeanette Goldstein. There you go. One of my favorite scenes in that movie is when, um, the, the young cowboy who's been abducted by this gang of vampires and he's sort of, he's resisting turning into a vampire himself, but he's gradually gaining acceptance by the others. Um, they, they come through a, some misadventure and he's, it's dawning on him that these people have been around for a while. Right. And they've seen several lifetimes and including the one who looks like a 10 year old. He's right. actually ancient as hell. What a curse. So <laughs> there's this line that we're, uh, uh, the, the cowboy is talking to Lance Henriksen's character, Jesse, who's this big scar down his face. And you, you can tell he's seen a lot of action. He says, Jesse, there's something I've been, been meaning to ask you. Yeah, what might that be? He says, how old are you? And Jesse says, well, let's put it this way. I fought for the South. The kid, he's old. <laughs> the kid says, the South is it? we lost. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, that is a, that's a great movie. It's, it's a good Halloween movie. Good Halloween fair. Mm-hmm. Are you going to watch some Halloween movies? Uh? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, my esteemed girlfriend is coming to town. Her birthday is several days before mine. Mine is the day before Halloween, so I always make a thing out of it. And uh, we're we're going to watch some of the same ones we typically watch. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas, of course. And um, Nice. That's a good one. Yeah. I always like this one that came about 10 or 12 years ago. It got almost no theatrical release. And me and everybody else who loved this movie have discovered it on DVD uh, called Trick or Treat. Treat. I don't know. If, it's yeah. an anthology movie. Huh. And uh, it's generated such a fan base just on home video viewing that the uh, last I heard, they were still talking about making a sequel to it, but I don't know what the current status is of that. Well, I might have to look that up. I, yeah. That no, it's ring. not trick or treat. It's simply trick or treat. Trick or treat is the way it's spelled. There's another movie that came out in the 80s called Trick or Treat, and that's not the same one. No, I was going to say, I know, I know that movie, but you said it, you'd said it came out a few years ago, so I was like, yeah. that can't be the same movie. Yeah. But uh, another one she and I are going to be watching is that uh, animated Adam's Family from a year ago. We watched that she, while we were evacuated. <laughs> uh, she missed it. Uh, I've seen it, and I've got it on now. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, I've got it on Amazon Prime. I love it. Um, one thing that um, that you may or may not have noticed is that the, the end credits, when they were the Adam's Family and doing the, yeah. that business, singing the song, that the characters, the animated characters are depicted in exactly the same images as the introduction of the TV show from the sixties. Really? Yeah. They, they just, they, they recreate those same images with the animated characters. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'll have to watch it again. Yeah. Look at them side by side sometime. Uh, It's funny. There's a, there's a guy on YouTube. There's a YouTuber who's enjoyable. This guy from Australia calls himself Minty. (laughs) And he, he does these, the series of videos about, 
uh, 10 things you didn't know about this, that, or the other. I know who you're talking he about. <laughs> well, he did one about 10 things you didn't know about the Adams family on film, you know? And, um, one thing he didn't know being from Australia is he didn't know about Charles Adams's cartoons. Oh, he didn't know about the original cartoons. No, he thought it just started with a TV show in the sixties. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, well, okay. He's not from around here, but, uh, but yeah, that his his delivery is always entertaining. Well, as a kid, I mean, I, my introduction to the Addams Family was the TV show. But my aunt, who was always enjoying showing us new things and encouraging us to learn about anything, was uh, she was like, you know this, and she heard one of her daughters had the the comics. Yeah, and so I got to see him, and then I understood where it came from. Yeah, I've got a couple of Charles Adams's books, like My Crowd and things like that, that have a lot of the Adams Family cartoons in them. And of course, the one thing that's kind of interesting about that is that when they made the the first of the Adams Family movies in the early '90s, the one with Raul Julia and um, also a classic in its yeah, own right, a wonderful and, movie. Angelica Houston, of course, Christina Ricci, America's Young Heartthrob. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, is that when they made that movie, they had gotten the rights from Charles Adams's widow to make the movie about these characters. Right. But they got sued anyway, because a lot of the stuff they included in that movie was stuff from the TV series that was not part of Charles Adams's cartoons. Oh, wow. Starting with their names. They were nameless characters in the cartoons. They were never referred to as Gomez or Morticia or even Adams. They were, yeah, there was just, they were just characters. Yeah. They were called the Adams family because Charles Adams created them. You know, right. that weird family about Charles Adams. Yeah. But, um, also, uh, Cousin It was created for the TV series. Okay. They didn't have the rights no. to use him, but they did, and they got sued for that. Uh, Lurch, uh, in the uh, in the old cartoons, is never seen playing a keyboard. Right. Okay. Right. That's a TV had, series. He has a harpsichord in the TV series, and he played an organ in the movie. So just all kinds of stuff that they had overlooked getting the rights to do. <laughs> um, but they, they, but they, the lawsuit basically just kind of settled things. It didn't, sure. It didn't, you know, take them to the cleaners or anything. It just acknowledged the guy who owned the rights and he got a check and they got the rights to use everything in the second movie. So, okay. Yeah. So, so everybody was happy. You know? Great. Actually, I've, I've made an argument for years. I think Wednesday as played by Christian Ritchie helped kickstart the entire emo movement of, young high school girls and junior high girls wearing black and being depressed and talking in a monotone voice without ever changing inflection. I, I think it was her. I think she did it. I think a lot of these young girls saw Wednesday when they were like sixth, seventh grade. Mm-hmm. I like that character. Yeah. It fits my, it fits the way I feel right now. Yeah. Sad and depressed and always, but of course for the Adamses, being depressed means they feel good. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. that's the thing. That, that that's um, that's a gag that's used. Uh, there were a lot of gags that were used in the movie that actually came straight from Charles Adams's cartoons. And one of them was when when Gomez says to Morticia, he says, "Unhappy, darling," and she says, "Yes, completely." <laughs> it's it's a wonderful. One of my favorite moments uh, from the first movie. One of my favorite moments is when Wednesday and Pugsley are in sort of a talent show on stage and they have that bloody sword fight. <laughs> <laughs> that gore spraying everywhere and the audience is just like uh, well, we had a we had a guy in school this goes back and chris powell if you're listening i haven't forgotten he uh his he uh, had access to uh stuff from a mortician's office and he could have mortician's wax and stuff like that he could play with but they did a they did the scene from julius caesar and it was a bloody mess. <laughs> it was, and I was like, every time I see the Adams family do that scene, I, th- I think back to to school long ago and Chris Powell and the guys uh, doing their bloody mess. 
I yeah. keep I keep uh, looking over at that red light and making sure that it's on. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, that, for those of you uh, who know what a screw up I can be, and that would be most people who know me. Earlier, I was recording our podcast and don't know what happened exactly. Still don't know. But my record stopped after eight seconds, and I never looked over there again, and that little red light was not on. Fortunately, for the last hour and 26 minutes, it has been on, <laughs> and we've been able to talk about Vlad, my buddy Vlad, or Lyndon Jocelyn, Count Dracula Goes to the Movies. Perfect book for a Halloween gift. That's what I think. Sure. And you can go to Amazon and pick it up. And you know what? It's going to be a book that you'll have a lot of fun with because it'll give you something to do. Uh, you can go and look at the book, find the movies, and go look. And I can't, you know, he also tells you if the movie's in print or not, which I think is really helpful. These movies, these uh, movies we were talking about uh, with Christopher Lee and and even even the original Dracula, if you've never seen it, it's a lot of fun, and you can get an appreciation for uh, early cinema, and also just the movies themselves. I personally, I think they're horror the way horror was, at least for me growing up, more suspense than mm. today. A lot of horror movies to me are just really slasher films. They're there's I don't want to say snuff films. Nobody's yeah. getting snuffed, but yeah. slash uh, slash was really big throughout the eighties and to a lesser extent in the nineties. And finally spectral horror started making a comeback Yeah, with right around 1999. They had uh stir of echoes, sixth sense and a really crappy remake of the haunting. Yes. <laughs> at, least, at least they were making a ghost story and they did a bad job of it, but at least, you know, and so we got into the more ghostly stories on into the aughts and into the, the we had a brief sojourn with torture porn. Yeah. Which I could take or leave. Yeah. But, I'm not um, a big fan, but um, they, they got into more and more like these PG 13 horror movies that are full of jump scares. And after a while they sort of get old too, but yeah, found, found footage films. Yeah. That, uh, that, uh, that has yet to run its course. Although I think unfortunately getting there, but, um, but I I like the 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 comeback of the uh, spectral ghostly suggested type things because uh, there was somebody there's a book I think I forget that said that well, right around 1968 69 is when everything changed for horror it changed for all cinema actually yeah. there's a there's a whole thing about that period mm -hmm. for for movie making true but uh, he was specifically pointing out that what happened to horror at that time first of all in 1969 or early I'm sorry early 1968. Boris Karloff died. Okay. So Boris and Bello were both gone by then, and they yeah. were the two twin horror giants of yesteryear. They were gone. The uh, MPAA came out with the rating system. Right. Because once upon a time, there was stuff you couldn't show in a movie. Well, now you could. You just had to have the appropriate rating on it. Correct. And to change everything in the horror field, Night of the Living Dead came out. There you go. And it came out shortly before the rating system, or else it would have been released with an X on it for violence. But uh, even still, it was... 68's a pivotal year, God, you know, pretty much all the way around. Movies, society, yeah. culture. But um, but with Night of the Living Dead, it was it was still violent enough to where uh, there there were a lot of like indoor theaters or uh, in-town theaters didn't want to show it. You pretty much right. had to go to a drive-in theater to see it. Well, um, back in the 70s, before everybody and his brother had a VHS or a beta, um, <laughs> the Alley Theater, which is a... Uh, an actual stage theater. This is like the prestigious downtown stage theater in Houston. Uh -huh. um, they used to have a movie festival in the summertime, a summer film fest. Really? Now, now they do plays throughout the year. And of course, with the, everything shut down for the pandemic, yeah. they're not, yeah. but they would do plays throughout the summer. But in those days, they would, they had an international film festival because not, 
like I said, home video hadn't even happened yet. Right. So they were showing art movies and international favorites and imported movies and foreign films with subtitles and what have you. But they had a Friday midnight sleaze series. And right there at the Alley Theater, the prestigious Nine Advance Alley Theater, is where I first saw Night of the Living Dead in 1975, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1977. Nice. And uh, sometime right about then, in the very late 70s, where I first saw Rocky Horror. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that may have been, that was one of Rocky Horror's very first screenings in town. Might have been its first one. Yeah. A a great, that's actually a pretty good, a pretty good Halloween movie if you just want to have fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still enjoy it. There's a couple parts that I fast forward through now. The third third act falls apart a little bit in Rocky Horror. Yeah. Rocky Horror sort of, um, it played briefly at this theater in Houston called The Tower that later was a Hollywood video store. And then after that, it was a Tex-Mex restaurant. But after it stopped showing at the tower, Rocky Horror moved on to the Alabama Theater. I know where that is. Yeah, yeah. right there on South Shepherd at 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 Alabama, and it it played there for quite some while and drew big crowds and everything. That's where I saw it. The subsequent times that I saw it, yeah, uh, after having catching it at the uh, the alley, and um, the uh, the Alabama Theater was later turned into a bookstore. It was called the Bookstop. Late October nineteen ninety nine. That's where I had a book signing for my first edition of my hey. book. Well, that's neat. Mm-hmm. What a nice, nice circle. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the owners of the land were talking about tearing it down. It's like one of the last old vintage theaters in, in Houston. And when it was no longer a theater and when it was no longer a bookstore, it was a vacant building. So they're talking about bulldozing it and building lofts or something. Yeah, of course. There was enough, enough grumbling and, and feedback from the community that they decided to save the building. And it's now a... Uh, Oh, it's a grocery store, and I can't, I can't. They still got the big sign outside yeah, that says Alabama. Got, they got the marquee, and they get that big pylon out. Yeah, the, the sidewalk, the pylon, Alabama. The, but it's it's a uh, Trader Joe's. It's oh, a, okay, it's, it's a Trader Joe's now. So okay, well, at least they saved the building though, yeah, and the go, pylon. <laughs> you can go inside and look around and still see that it used to be a movie theater. Yeah, the, the and man, I, people can't appreciate anymore because there's really none of those old theaters standing anymore. Mm-hmm. They're pretty much, I mean, they're, I'm sure in some cities, there's still a few vestiges of those kind of theaters still left standing. Oh yeah. There's a wonderful one in San Antonio. And, uh, well, I was reading about one they had in New York and I forget which one it was. They got torn down long ago, mm-hmm. but that seated 2,800 people. Mm-hmm. I mean, 2,800 people in a movie theater is yeah. just stunning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I read this book not long ago called Cinema Houston. It's uh, by a, a, a guy that I know, a fellow named David Welling. So if you're, if you're going to Amazon to look at my book, look up his as well. Cinema Houston, David Welling. And uh, it's a very well-written book. It's very well put together, thoroughly researched, lots of interviews, lots of uh, – he did a lot of sleuthing through old newspaper clippings and stuff like that. Beautiful pictures of the interiors and exteriors. These old theaters in Houston that just, for the most part, are not there anymore. Right. And including – uh, there were there were two of them downtown that were right next door to each other. The, the I think it was the Majestic and the Lowe's State were right next to each other, and the Kirby was across the street and a block down, something like that. So he had this cluster of theaters. And I told him, I, I sent him an email. I said, you know, in 1970, I was 13 going on 14, we went to Houston because I had to have open-heart surgery. And as a kid, as a kid. Yeah. And Texas was the place to be the med center. I I was operated on by Denton Cooley. So, but uh, we were driving through downtown Houston. I was in the back seat and my parents were driving and we were heading down main street and we passed by two theaters that were side by side. 
the uh, the the Lowe's State and the other one, the Majestic, I think it was. And to a small town kid like me from Lake Charles, two big movie theaters literally right next door. Right next to each other. That was a sight unheard of. I'd just never seen anything like it before. And they're both long gone now. They were torn down in the early 70s. Yeah. Well, in Lake Charles, one old theater, the building is still there. The the Paramount is gone. The pit is gone. But the Lyric that was off of Ryan Street, just mm-hmm. like a half a block going towards the Civic Center, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of a, – Sears building used to be across the street. Yeah. That building is still there. The and the building is still there? Yeah, and the sign actually is that you can tell that it was a theater at one time. Mm-hmm. There's been all kinds of things in there. There's been a secondhand shop, and I don't know what's in there right now. Who knows? Yeah. And, they're, and the Sears building is long gone, and they're building apartments there that I don't know how they held up. Who knows? <laughs> I don't, Lake Charles, everything downtown got damaged, so who knows? But that it, when I look at that building, I still think, man, there it is. You know, And, and it was small. It was a small theater. Uh, but I love the fact that the 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 shape of everything in that front there's just a distinction, you know. When you look at it, you go, oh, that was one of those old theaters. Yeah, and and, and I think that's kind of cool. I'm glad it's still there. Who knows how long it'll be there? Yeah, but they um, they preserve the the building of the West Alabama or the, the yeah the the Alabama theater. One of the things that um, I was reading in uh, Dave Welling's book, um, uh, Cinema Houston, was about segregated theaters back in the day yeah a hundred years ago what have you and um back in the days of silent movies the movie a lot of times was only about 20 minutes long so uh the very early short movies so they would have a a whole show of entertainment they would have magicians right musical acts and literally dog and pony shows up there and (laughs) then the movie 20 minutes long would be the last thing but uh these theaters were segregated back in those days even some of the big splendid palaces you had a so-called colored entrance right where they couldn't go in the front door and up the stairs. They had to take basically a fire escape outside the building up to the second floor where the balcony was reserved for them. Right. Okay. And, or you, uh, you had, of course, uh, away from downtown off in a neighborhood, you'd have the Ebony cinema or something like that. Right. Cause there was a whole industry of black movies there for a while. Anyway, some of these theaters also, as far as accommodating a black audience, they would have different show times for them. And that, that had something to do with the development of midnight movies. Oh yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Midnight when, you know, okay, nobody else is around. Y'all can come to the theater and sort of thing. Yeah. And one thing in Houston that kind of helped break the ice is that Cab Calloway came to town to put an appearance at one of these theaters. Oh wow. Everybody black and white wanted to see Cab Calloway. And so there was really no way to accommodate all the crowds without just letting everybody in at the same time. And that helped kind of break down that that, barrier that, uh, yeah, the uh, segregational barrier there. Cool. Because when you tell a theater owner that this is going to make a $10,000 difference for you. Okay. (laughs) Everybody come on in. Come on. All right. I guess I should wrap this up. It's been long enough and we've actually done two of them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So uh, my guest was uh, Lyndon Jocelyn. Or as I know him, Vlad, mm-hmm. and his book Count Dracula Goes to the Movies, available at Amazon in its third edition, and probably going to have to make a fourth edition before long. Sooner or later, if they yeah. keep cranking out Dracula movies, and I'm sure they will. And uh, yep, <clears throat> there's probably one being made somewhere right now. Uh, like I said, we better wrap it up, uh, Vlad. It's it's been a joy having you here and uh, yeah. hanging out and and having too many adult beverages last night. I want to thank Vlad. Uh, don't forget, if you want to get a hold of me, it's uh, longintheboot at gmail.com. You can also leave a message at the Long in the Boot phone number, 337-502-9011. And we'll be back real soon with another Long in the Boot podcast. Habs will be returning at some point, I'm quite sure. 
And other than that, that's about it. Got anything you'd like to add, Vlad? Yeah, it rhymes. Oh, um, not really. This uh, this uh, publisher that published my book is McFarland. They're from North Carolina, and they do a lot of related stuff, a lot of entertainment-related stuff, and they they have some other Dracula-related titles of, and vampire-related titles if people are uh, interested in, in checking out some of their other things. I was a, a freelance copy editor for them for almost 15 years, but they've decided to streamline their operations, so now I'm looking for something else to do as a, as a freelancer. But it's given me some time on my hands to, to finish a, a long-term project I had, which I've, I've written a, a fairly long piece of fiction. When I, I put it that way, that convoluted sort of way, I'm reluctant to say I've written a novel because I've, sown, I've, yeah, known, sounds, I've yeah, known so many cliche. dinglings over the years. Like, I'm writing a novel. Right. And they can barely put 10 words together. Or, you know, they'll write one page every eight months or something like that. I'm writing a novel. No, you're not. But um, I, I see, I wrote a screenplay many years ago, and uh, it was actually represented by an agent for a couple of years, but never sold. So it sat in the bottom drawer for a long time. And I finally, just last year, sat down with a, a pen and a spiral notebook, because I never learned how to type properly, and <laughs> wrote it out, um, turned it into a novel. Okay. And so uh, right now, my esteemed girlfriend, who is uh, an English teacher and a composition teacher, is uh, going to give me the the beta read on it and uh sure and you don't want to edit your own stuff yeah um well i can i, can, <laughs> I mean you do edit uh, your own stuff as yeah, you go i, I, I can guess copy really. edit my own stuff but it, in terms of if anything it might be a little bit on the short side so yeah. i sure give this a read and tell me what you think it might need more of right because i don't want to pad it for length but it, it there might be there might be some further development of this or that that needs plus the main character is a 23 year old woman and I was never a 23-year-old woman. No. And she was, so she might have some insights. Actually, that's, there. yeah, I got you. Yeah, so. That's a good idea. Okay, well, we look for it. And when it's published, you'll be back on Long in the Boot. Yeah. There you go. Okay. All right, everybody, y'all take care. Uh, we'll see you real soon. And I say we'll see you. You know, I, I don't know how else to say it. Um, you'll hear me real soon? I don't know. Anyway, thanks for listening to Long in the Boot, y'all. And we'll be back real soon. Take care. Hang on to your loved ones and... Well, hopefully school will be starting for everybody real soon. Ta-ta.